Welcome to Extravision with me, Andy McCarroll, and on today's show, we're going to be looking back at the best and worst of 2022, and it is my honor, my pleasure, my privilege to welcome not one, not two, but three guests on the show today. The Wheel of Movies Band is back together, host and producer Gordon Hayden, movie critic Chris Wasser, and the editor of Geek Ireland, Olivia Fahey. Guys, how are we all? Great, thanks, Andy. We're good, thanks, Andy. Olivia, I'm going to start with you. I know you had a bit of a ding dong about this on Geek Ireland, your favourite film of the year. And I believe the only five star film on Geek Ireland this year, correct me if I'm wrong. And that was Banshees of Inishir. And why did this grab the top spot for you? Well, as much as I love correcting you when you are wrong, you are actually spot on with that. It was the only five star review that we had on site for the entire year, which is kind of rare for us. But yeah, it just... For me, it hit all the right notes. And even though when I went in to watch it, I was like, oh, wow, this is so tonally different to what I was actually expecting. Because there had been so much talk about it being like almost in Bruges part two, you know, that kind of way um, that it almost took away from what it actually was about. So I was pleasantly surprised that it had such a much more darker energy going on, but also was just the pinnacle of Irish culture, I thought. It was the only film that actually had me wanting to get up and clap at the end. So knowing that it had such a long standing ovation at the end of the Venice Film Festival, I was just like, yes, I would have been one of those people standing there and being like, you all have to wait until I'm finished clapping before you can leave. (laughs) Um, It just was beautiful. The cinematography, my God, some of those angles were just stunning. I loved all the reflection work throughout, uh, not only just with like the surroundings with the water and things like that, but also mirrors and through windows and all of that just added to the beauty of what we saw. It's just a stunning, stunning film. And I really and truly hope because the Golden Globe, um, Golden Globes are going to be on now next week. So of winners from it as well, because it is just so deserving of everything. I'm like, give it all of the awards, please. <laughs> thing I really liked about it and I'm going to go into it later is everyone seemed to have a different opinion of what it was actually about you had people who just thought oh this is a really good dark comedy or people thought you know it's a kind of an allegory for the, the Irish Civil War you people were just like well, talking about it's just, it's just a weird quirky little film do you think that will work for it or against it when it comes to things like you know the Golden Globes and the Oscars I actually think it's going to work for it because as we've seen with especially like the Oscars, especially over the last couple of years, they kind of like voting for the one that they vote for. So like Paris is a great example of that. Moonlight was another one. Um, They're the films that may not have been the favorites going into it, but were certainly a deserving winner and the one that I think the people really wanted to win as well. And I kind of am getting that energy with Banshees of Inish Aaron. And I think a great example of why this is actually so appealing to a lot of people, even if they're surprised by it or not, is the fact that you, myself, and not agree on films very often. Gordon can attest to this, but we actually all agreed that Banshees was probably one of our favorite films of the year. Now, Gordon then threw a spanner in the works and said that he didn't think it was as good, but you know, (laughs) we'll just ignore him entirely. But the three of us were all in agreement that it was a top notch film. And you know, if that's not a good enough review for it, I don't know what is. I think one of the reasons we liked it and Gordon bring you in here is I think Colin Farrell and Barry Cowan just have this tremendous goodwill at the moment. I think we're in the middle of the, the reconnaissance, as I'm calling it now. We've seen him in, in, <laughs> as the Penguin and Batman and he was in uh, After Yang as well, which was also a very, very good, very underrated film. Do you think that the fact that, you know, we're seeing this you know, comeback of sorts from Colin Farrell and an emergence of like a new superstar in Barry Cowan, do you think that's another reason why it would, would appeal to people, Gordon? 
I'm, I definitely think with Barry Keoghan, um, I've spoken to some people who've seen Banshees and they were a little bit on the fence about him as an actor, but have definitely come away and, and finally went, I get it. I, I, I see now what people have been raving about and and the talent on show. And I think the, the thing about Colin Farrell is that he's just an incredible character actor. Like that's where he's at his best playing characters. It's just that he has the movie star look but he really is a character actor at heart. And when he isn't chasing a total recall and working with directors like Martin McDonough, they bring the best out of him. And I think that's probably why he made a decision, I think maybe off the back of Total Recall when that bombed, was maybe not to chase these big blockbusters anymore and to really kind of seek out more intimate, more independent type of features and give him give him something to really work with. Look at him taking on the Penguin. Like for the most part, that is very much, it's a side role. But like what he did with that, like he kind of almost brought this uh, almost uh, Al Capone-like quality to uh, Cobblepot. And I just thought, you know what, that's an actor that is not afraid to take on might be kind of really small roles, but really bring something fresh to them. And Banshees of Inishirin, like it's it, like ourselves, it's like getting the band back together again with McDonough and Brendan Gleeson. And yeah, I probably like when I in our WhatsApp group, when I said I wasn't really in love with the film, you would have sworn that I passed on to the black market, uh, Chris, Olivia and Andy's pin numbers. I mean, like everyone was like, what? what? <laughs> and I really, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I should say that it's one of those films and like After Sun, which I know we'll, we'll talk about a little bit, but it, it definitely percolates with you days after. Like you kind of start thinking about the themes and you kind of touched on the Irish Civil War and, and the symbolism at play and how, you know, you have this war uh, between what was once two sides working together that have now become poles apart, which has obviously echoes toward what's going on on Inishirin between Colin Farrell's character and Brendan Gleeson. And there are so many different themes at play between ego, a feeling of in being institutionalized, trying to escape um, abuse. Um, um, uh, and like there's so many different things there. And, and also, um, a relationship between two men becoming almost divorced of each other and how difficult that can be for men who, for, especially when communication mightn't be one of their strongest suits, when you're trying to find answers, when you're dealing with almost like a brick wall, you just, all you want to do is find out why, why do you, you want this relationship to be, uh, to be torn apart as it were? Uh, because again, there's maybe an, an element of ego at play. So, um, it's one of those films where I have to say I did like it. I did like it, but I wouldn't have been as in love with it now and throwing stars at it um, uh, as crazy like a ninja. But I I did like it, um, but yeah, not in love with it. Are you saying about Colin? Ninja. I, I think we all know who the ninja on this show is, and I think we're going to start bringing him in now. Chris. <laughs> I hear you now. Hold on. <laughs> Gordon said it there as well. And just actually on the Colin Farrell thing, he is sort of like a character, like Brad Pitt, a character actor with a leading star, good looks. They always like the, the quote and entourage. I know you were a fan of the show as well, Gordon, where Ari mm. go, well, look how many terrible films Colin Farrell makes, but gets another chance because he looks like a movie star. And the perception is he's a movie star. But <laughs> exactly. someone else who's looking to be the next movie star is Barry Keown. And people are saying, oh yeah, that's so obvious. But I kind of think of, Robert Sheehan was in like the, the same series of Love, Hate as him and everyone thought, oh, he's going to be you know, the Irish Ryan Reynolds and he has just completely fallen by the wayside. Why do you think, I'm not to compare him to Robert Sheehan, Chris, but why do you think Barry Keown has emerged as, you know, this oddball to superstar pretty much? 
I think he's a better performer um, and he's a more accomplished performer. The same as Colin Farrell, who is attracted to, you know, uh, sideways, odd, peculiar supporting roles. You know, he was so unsettling and so chilling in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Um, he was willing to kind of show up as not one of the the, the soldiers, not one of the, you know, the, the war heroes in Dunkirk. But, you know, the, the, the young fella who didn't get to go to war, but wanted to get on that boat with Mark Rylance's character and just do simple things like, you know, help the boys out. And then, of course, tragedy strikes. I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't yet watched Dunkirk, but it's a quiet role, but it leaves a big mark. And that's kind of what he's been doing throughout his whole career, whether he's in something like Eternals or Cam with Horses closer to home. He always is, you know, leaving that mark. He's, he's almost always the 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 most memorable aspect of whatever film that he's in I and mean, he's also got a great face and you know the, his expressions in every performance they're they're, they're always they're, they're just so elastic and they're kind of chilling in a way too and he just always stays with you and i think i've also had conversations with people over christmas who were a little bit uncertain about get barry kogan and whether he was doing the same thing in every performance i, I didn't think that but they were they, they did a complete 180 on it as soon as they saw uh, uh, the Banshees of Inisherin, particularly when it comes to, you know, Barry Keoghan's character, who is a little bit of a, a throwback, a little bit of a nod to, you know, uh, John Hurt's character in, in, in the field. You know, that, that, that sort of relationship that he wants with Siobhan, with Podrick's sister, and how he kind of chases her and how he kind of, you know, at one stage just professes his love and says, you know, is there a chance that we might be able to have something in the future? When she lets him down gently, that performance... That could be, those two minutes of cinema, that could be the reason why Academy Voters, I think, when it comes to selecting the Best Supporting Acting Actor uh, Oscars, will think, hey, Barry Kogan might be worth looking at here. I think that might turn around things for him. I, I love this film. I loved every everything about the performances. I loved the writing. I love that as well, that it's not, it's not immediately obvious what this thing is about. This thing is about... A lot of different you know you've got the civil war backdrop you've got the idea that as adults we're not allowed to or we're not supposed to break up with our friends you know we're not we're, we're at a stage in life you know according to this film where look our friends are our friends and you're not supposed to leave them why not you know that there's that little oh. funny scene where barry kogan's character says you know what is he 12 it's like no there's this idea that you don't want to hang around with someone anymore and that, i suppose that, also chris there's also to jump in is that about what you will sacrifice for your art and yes. that you will try to push people away in order to create something. Because if you don't have almost that sense of escape, you'll never be able to achieve that. And yeah. I think that was also another, again, it, there's so much there. It's very hard to kind of go, it's about that. There's so many facets to it. Yeah, I you made a great well. point. There's that. There's a very similar scene in Whiplash, which is a bit more kind of on the nose, where Miles Teller is saying, like, basically, I need to get rid of all my friends because I want to be great. And I think Banshee's done that. I think you, you touched on it there. Very good point. In a much more subtle way. And again, it's, it's one of those things where you'll come out of that film with, with 50 different interpretations of what it is. And just on your point as well, Chris, I think American Animals, if you think Barry Cowan is a one-note pony, watch that. I think it was our film of the year in 2018, Gordon, for Wheel of That's Movies. Right. Absolutely phenomenal. That very, very underrated film. Chris, I've got you on a roll here, so I might as well stick with you. You've picked a film <laughs> that I see... Um, Top of a fair few people's list now, certainly not mine, and that's after some. Yes, I was I was so fond of this film, and I knew very little about it going in, which is which is often a good thing now, um, given that you know we tend to know so like think about how much we knew about the Banshees of Inisherin going in. Whereas when I was watching After Sun, I thought Paul Meskel's in this, 
I've only seen Paul Mescal in a couple of things. Everyone has watched Normal People. What's he going to be like, you know, holding his own in his own 100-minute drama? Sensational, as it turns out. Uh, it was uh, from writer-director Charlotte Wells. Um, it's kind of deceptively straightforward. You know, on the face of it, you think this is another father and daughter drama. We have this young father, Paul Mescal, playing a 30-year-old Scottish man who, by all accounts, you know, I've spoken to people about his, his, his Edinburgh accent here. To, to these ears, at least, it is perfect. Um, so you based know, on Shirley he, Manson, apparently. Based on Shirley, well, there, there, there you go. The accent is it is <laughs> spot on. Um, but he is playing a thirty-year-old father to a a, a youngster, Sophie, and uh, played by a remarkable newcomer uh, by the name of Frankie Corio. And they are going on holidays, and it is the the nineteen nineties. They're off on a sun holiday for a week, you know, a destination holiday, kind of, you know, the uh, where the, the the type of resort where everything's already paid for, and it's clear that their relationship they don't always see one another that, you know, uh, Paul Mescal's character is separated from Sophie's mom, that, you know, it's been some time since they actually lived together. Maybe something happened in their relationship, whether they were married or not, they're no longer together, but that the relationship between, you know, the, the, the father and the daughter, despite the fact that they don't see each other, it's, it's, it's still strong and it's strong in a way that, you know, they talk to one another as though they're equals, as though they're in a way brother and sister or as though they're, as though they're friends and as though the both of them are adults. And it kind of goes along and you think, well, there's going to be something here where, where you know, the, the daughter will run away one night or hang around with, you know, all their kids who, you know, will do something and maybe, you know, break her heart or, or the father's going to have a bit of a meltdown. It, it never does any of those things. It goes off into different avenues and it does so in a very quiet, very slow burning way. And I know we'll come back to it in a minute. I know that kind of that slow burning way annoyed you a little bit, Andy, but I liked how it didn't take the obvious route. And about halfway through the film, you start to realize that the older Sophie's actually gone back and is watching videos or, you know, the holiday videos to remind herself of this holiday. So clearly, so, you know, she's kind of looking back to see what her relationship with her father is like. Clearly something has happened with the dad. That's and one of the issues I had. Of that. I wanted, I, I wanted something with the older version to connect with that because it, I don't think the, the older one even has a line in the film. And it just, it didn't sit. Now I'll be honest. It's one of those films that, I'm glad we didn't review it straight after because I would have absolutely slated it. But like Gordon <laughs> kind of touched on about Banshees, the more after the fact it sat with me, the more I appreciate it. I still don't think it's great. There's still a lot of things like the, the, the music cues where I, I hate when someone plays a song where the lyrics are telling you what you're supposed to be feeling. That really gets gets on my nerves. I thought the two of them were incredible together. They really felt like, you know, are they actually father and daughter? They do have that great chemistry and there is that real sense of impending doom and dread mm -hmm. through the whole film that like you yeah. said never really pays off well depending on how you interpret the ending it never really pays off but it just it, it felt like a, an idea that was gestating that didn't really finish now i know I'm, I'm in the minority i think i'm the only person that hasn't given it five stars and i'm gonna bring gordon I know gordon watched it recently as well so i'm curious to get your take on it now gordon do you know what it is, Andy? Um, because like that, I, I'd, I'd known in advance that how much Chris had enjoyed it and, and your feelings on it. And I thought, God, I wonder now where will I sit on this? And it's definitely one of those films where you nearly need to be like a detective yourself while you're watching it because it is a slow burner. And I think it's one of those films that it nearly is more effective after you've seen it. Like, because as you kind of look back at everything yourself, like so the older Sophie. Um, 
But the thing about the film that I thought was really interesting is how subtle and nuanced it is and how well Charlotte Wells has gotten those performances out of her actors because there are things there that are underneath the surface that are at play. It's one of those films where it shows and it doesn't tell. Like Paul Mescal's character, he clearly has a drink problem. Like at one stage, um, he's he's ordering his third pint where I think they've barely just finished um, their starter at one stage when they're at the resort in Turkey. And he's got he's broken his uh, his his wrist. How did that happen? And um, there's one stage he's on a boat and he says to one of the attendants on the boat, I'll be lucky if I make it to 40. You kind of go, God, what's going on with this fella? And then one stage he goes to cross the road and, and oblivious to a, a, a coach that's uh, driving along the road. And you kind of go, did you not even see that? Do you have a death wish here? And you kind of feel that all is not right with this man. And that really is signposted at the very beginning of the film, which... Um, the young um, so, uh, Sophie, she asks her father, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but something along the lines of, can you remember what it was like when you were 11? And he just kind of stops and he he's not happy about that particular question. And you kind of feel that that's kind of like a two prong thing. Did something happen to him when he was 11 that he does not want to revisit? Or is this the type of film that's not going to give us all the answers that we want? And I think that's the, when the film does culminate. I think that's a big part of it. That Sophie, even though she's looking back, back at what is essentially a treasure trove of the, probably that one of the happiest times she's had with her father, she will never, ever get the answers that she wanted uh, in no matter how many times she looks at the, that um, holiday videos. And the film is peppered with a scene in which Sophie is moving through a warehouse of a rave and she's desperately trying to get to her father. And it's in that void, it's in that darkness, that darkness which um, her father just seems out of reach. And you kind of wonder, is she stepping through the darkness of that was that was in, in his mind? And I, I kind of felt like that's the problem with the, that's the problem for her is that she'll never be able to get the answers that she truly wants from her father and ultimately what happened to him. And I like the like, there was like the little breadcrumbs you see like uh, he's got a lot of books on kind of like inner peace and stuff like that. he's somebody who who knows he has an issue trying to address it in in certain ways. It reminded me, funnily enough, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a film called uh, Cache or Hidden, I think is the English uh, name of it by Michael Haneke where it's these people are receiving videotapes of somebody sitting outside their house. Now there's these like five, 10 minute shots of just nothing happening. And it reminded me of that, just that sense of oh, dread building, building, but then never really paying it off. It has improved somewhat the, the longer removed from what I am. That's why I said, I'm glad I didn't review it straight away, but I don't like, I don't see it as, as the five-star classic that everyone is saying it is. I know Chris is screaming into the ether there beside me. I am. Yeah. <laughs> So we'll move on to you, Gordon. You, of course, had to go with a horror <laughs> film. And one of the surprising hits, that, uh, and a film I probably enjoyed more than after, so I'm being honest, and that is Barbarian. Yeah, this film, I'd heard an awful lot of goodwill uh, toward it stateside when it came out. And the... Um, the best way to describe this film, it's a film of two halves. It starts off very David Fincher-like and then ends up becoming something like Sam Raimi would make. And the setup is great in that you've got a girl who shows up at an Airbnb. It's dark. It's late at night. She turns up at this really kind of small, little dingy looking house. And there's been a double booking. And who's booked it? Only Pennywise himself, Bill Skarsgård. And he's got one of those faces that you kind of go, hmm, handsome, but at the same time threatening. And he invites her in because like that, she's out. She's trying to 
find a motel and when she gets back to the car and it's like, you know, you, you might as well come back. You might as well come on in here and take refuge. And there's that uneasiness about their interactions because she goes, oh, I don't know this fella from Adam. This guy could be, you know, a, a predator. God knows what could happen? And he asks, would you like to stay the night? And he offers her his room and he'll sleep on the, on the couch. But still, there's that level of uneasiness. But as the evening goes on, um, you kind of see that he seems like a nice fella. But the odd time, a little red flag might pop up where he'll say, oh, what's your name? Oh, that's a pretty name. And you kind of see, oh, my God, he shouldn't really said that. What does that say about him? And it's interesting that the, uh, that the writer director had uh, read a book called... Um, it's protecting the gift. I think some, that was the name of it or something along those lines. But it was all about different red flags that can pop up in conversations that people should be wary of, especially when it comes to your your own personal security and safety. But the film then takes a left turn and you're expecting Bill Skarsgård to be some sort of Norman Bates. And in fact, he's not because underneath the house, there are tunnels. There is a lair. And there is almost a kind of a, a Joseph Fritzl type of character has uh, has been a previous resident of this particular house. And there has been massive uh, inbreeding off the back of a number of women who have been abducted and, uh, and assaulted uh, down in the bowels of this house. And we learn about this as the as the film goes on. And we also have to bring in the fact that the film does a little bit of a gear change. And uh, we have... Um, uh, Justin Long's character, he comes into play because I don't want to spoil too much of it, but this guy is the ultimate narcissist. And it's interesting to see once he comes on the scene, because he turns out that he is the new owner of the house, oblivious to the the, the previous owner and, um, and his nefarious ways. And uh, how things play out, the dark comedy that comes through him. And then we get the big reveal of what is lurking underneath the house. When that kicks off, it then suddenly becomes a creature feature. I really love the cast and the Bill Skarsgård because I thought that was a brilliant misdirect. And the one thing that always annoys me in horror films is when something, like you said, the red flags pop up and you're just like, just just leave, just go out the door. But he's just, there's enough in it where you, I'm thinking if I'm in that situation, yeah, I'd probably do the same. It might be a bit awkward, but they haven't done anything particularly wrong and everything seems to be checking out. And one of the things for me is when you see that area during the day, it's, it's a kind of a rundown area to try that is as terrifying as anything else in the film because you're just looking going, oh, this is actually a real place that they, they've shot in. And like I said, about an hour into it, Justin Long shows up, I completely forgot he was in this. It reminds me, I don't know if you saw it last year, uh, Malignant, where it's this, you know, it's a horror film up until a point and then it just goes absolutely balubas and, and the same thing here. I thought as well, Zach Krieger, the director, he was going to go on, he, you know, he'd be snapped up by Blumhouse or, or A24 with him. But his next film now, he's actually doing a, it's like a comedy troupe he's in called The Whitest Kids You Know. And he's trying to crowdfund a, a film from that, which seems like a, a bit of a, a left uh, a left turn on his part. So curious to see where he ends up. Another film that came out this year, Gordon, you're lookalike. Uh, Tom Cruise uh, came back in <laughs> Top Gun Maverick. And the most successful film of the year. I, I wasn't expecting incredible. a sequel to Top Gun to break a billion dollars. But here we are. Olivia... What did you think of the, the, the sequel to Top Gun? And are you a fan of the original? Um, well, I actually have to correct you ever so slightly because Avatar just overtook us this week um, in terms well, of box office Well, it's 2023 now, so. <laughs> but it was released in 2022, so it still counts in their box office tallies. But anyways, I really enjoyed Maverick. I only saw Top Gun um, recently, shall we say, um, just before I'd seen Maverick because I knew that I had to go see it. Um, and I was like, well, I should probably have a bit of a, a 
base to sort of go in with and thoroughly enjoyed it. I just, I, I liked the first one, but I actually think that Maverick might even be better. It tackled things in a way that I think was very respectful to the, the first installment. It acknowledged that it has been like however number of years it's been since the previous one. And it kind of like, toyed with that idea of you know like Tom Cruise uh, should be like hitting on women his own age and things like that so I I thought it was great and the action sequences were unbelievable like we know it's Tom Cruise he loves going into all of that stuff but it even still took my breath away oh god that, that's a joke that oh I my god I didn't even <laughs> notice I didn't even notice I did that <laughs> Oh, I could see that coming in slow motion. You (laughs) mentioned something here, which I think a lot of kind of legacy sequels don't do, is they don't respect the original characters. They just, they turn them into idiots or they try and, you know, here's the new cool replacements. And this didn't do that, but still gave him kind of thing to grow. You mentioned it there, like the the moment where he jumps out of the room and he's after giving like the little booty call and he's like, next thing the daughter looks out and she's shaking his head and he's like, okay, I'm 60 years old. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And another legacy character, I, re- I thought Val Kilmer's cameo on that was just, that's the perfect way to do that. It didn't mm-hmm. take, if anything, it enhanced what he'd done in the first film. And it built on from that. Chris, Top Gun Maverick, is this going to be the film we agree on? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was certainly uh, one of the most accomplished blockbusters of last year. Um, and that that cameo uh, from from Val Kilmer, it was lovely. It was respectful. It was the right amount. The the the, the chemistry between Cruz and Kilmer, um, it was very very well done. I didn't think they were actually going to do that. You know, sitting there not knowing what what Val Kilmer's involvement was the film in, in the film was going to be like at the beginning. You know, they were kind of teasing his return. I didn't think they were going to have such a, t- a touching tender scene between them, but it was nice to see that. There, I did. Have have problems with it i mean i i wish the film had actually given jennifer connelly something to do other than serving tom cruise a drink and giving me you know bring, and bringing him home and i wish that you know there had been room i know we disagreed on this when we were reviewing it last year it, it never felt as though there was room for anyone else except for tom cruise and even you know the, there are great performers in there and even when miles teller was standing beside tom cruise all you can see is tom cruise he's just he's too big for this film that said he is very good in this, you know, and, and the, despite the fact that the, the screenplay often sounded like it was written on the back of a beer mask, that wasn't really important because the set pieces are what held this together. And I think Top Gun Maverick should be held up as an example of what we can still do or what filmmakers can still do when it comes to blockbuster filmmaking and that it, it doesn't all have to be CGI and green screen. The set pieces in here and the action sequences are some of the finest, I think, ever committed to film. And the effort that went into making you know bringing people out into theaters and i know i sound a little bit like tom cruise here because he was he wanted people to see this on the big screen it deserved to be seen on the big screen i would love to see this film again but i don't know if i want to watch it on tv at home i disagree with you slightly with the tom cruise thing i and i think i said it when we were reviewing on the show i think this is as egoless as you're gonna get cruise like there's a scene in it where miles teller is berating him and miles teller looks about three feet taller than him now, you can't imagine someone like, you know, my friend The Rock allowing a scene like that or allowing a scene where like a young girl dresses him down for like, you know, messing her mom around. I thought this was the one where he was, you know, he gave Miles Teller a lot. He gave uh, uh, Glenn, what's his name? The, I can't think of the other guys, the Aussie guy's name. He gave them a, a lot of screen time as well. And I thought it done that without saying, here's the, the next generation. Gordon, this film was directed by uh, Joseph Krasinski. I know you and I were kind of like, oh, is this going to be, you know, 
basically a puppet master where Cruz tells him like he did on Oblivion, just do what you want. <laughs> I, I was pleasantly surprised at this. I thought this had the, all the makings of a disaster. What were your thoughts on it? Yeah, I have to say, I did have an awful lot of reservations around Joseph Kaczynski. I did think yeah, that he was there to call lunch and that, yeah, that Cruz was the real director behind the scenes. But it turns out that Kaczynski was brought on this uh, in the early stages, probably off the back of Cruz, who probably said, no, if, if Jerry, so Jerry Brockhammer, if we're thinking of doing this, um, Joseph's got the it's got the, the the skills to do it, but it was Kaczynski was the one that said in order to really bring the heart, the, the glue that is to bring this all together, it has to be around the relationship between Rooster and and uh, Maverick. Like that really is at its center, and of course, Rooster is the son of Goose, um, who's played by uh, Anthony Edwards, and this is a surrogate father story at its heart, and um, even though it completely lifts. The uh, climactic battle in A New Hope from Star Wars when they attack the Death Star. Like that, that is not the end. A hundred percent. We need to hit this like two meter thing and the swamp rats <laughs> possibly down there. It's the exact same ending to it. But you know what? It's one of those uh, films where you, you have to admire um, the skill that's there involved. Even though it's made all the money in the world at this point, even though Avatar then has just shaved it, I don't know if do they need to go back to the well again. Is it best? Would you guys like to see a third film? I don't know if I would. I think maybe leave it now. No, absolutely not from my end anyway. I think you, you, you've you you've uh, created the ultimate heist here. Just let that sleeping dog lie. Speaking agree, of money and ones that have made a ton of money, Olivia, you mentioned it there. One of my worst films of the year, an absolute penance to sit through. Avatar The Way of Water. <laughs> I liked it. I thought it was fine. It certainly wasn't, it didn't have the same impact that the first installment did, but I, I, I was actually more surprised that it had an actual plot that you were kind of like, well, that actually makes a lot of sense. Like, humans return to Pandora to get revenge. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that that's exactly what we'd do, you know. Um, they got booted off the planet that they hoped would save them, and then they're like, "Well, no, we're gonna go back and like make sure that we get it this time because otherwise, like, Earth is dying out, and we've got no other answers." So, like, yeah, it made logical sense, and Jake, Sully, and family going to you know try and escape them, and that sort of journey with the new tribes. Yeah, it it made a lot more sense than I thought it was going to. Did it make total sense? No. Did it need all of those beautiful shots of the kid with the whale? Whale thing, I say with quotes. Um, no, probably didn't need all of those beautiful shots. But were they beautiful? Yes, they were very stunning. Um, so it, it's definitely, it's a hard one to review because I always used to say to people, like, for something like this, it's more the experience than it is the actual film. So you need to be able to see it with your own two eyes in order to make your own assessment of how you enjoyed it. So I thought it was lovely. I thought it was very pretty to look at. It didn't need to be the three and a quarter hours long. Um, but otherwise, you know, it like for something just so nice to watch, you know, it's nice. Story nice. and logic in the Avatar <laughs> review were doing a lot of heavy lifting there. It is exactly <laughs> the same as the first. You had that unobtainium in the forest film. And then all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> oh, oh, we've we've got this whale here, which is like, this is like, we've literally got our white whale in this film. Oh, by the way, if you drill into their brains, there's the secret of eternal youth. How in the name of God did you find that out? It's exactly the same film as the forest one, except you've put it on water. No relevance for it to be on water. How many times those kids going to get handcuffed to a goddamn rail? And, and... <laughs> I will give you that one. I'll give you that one. Chris, help, uh, help me here. She's saying no. Avatar had logic and story point and was a great experience. 
It absolutely does not. I mean, it. Uh, it's appalling. It's probably the most bored I've ever been in a cinema. And you talk, Olivia, about the fact that there, 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 there's a plot there. I agree. There's about 20 minutes worth of plot. And this is a three hour and 15 minute long film. And I think Cameron just, and he's been talking recently about how, you know, the, the, there was enough plot in the second one that they had to split it up. And that's why we're getting a third one, even though he always said that we we're going to get five Avatar films. That's nonsense. This whole idea that, you know, Stephen Lang's character comes back to an act of revenge. That's a very small part of the film. The rest of it is just basically free willy. With blue people, and it's 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 very very strange that the film is takes up so much time with so much splashing about, literally with so much many swimming sequences. With you know the uh, Sam Wardenian's uh, character, I forgot his name there for a second, Jake Sully, like looking for a new home for them. Everything in this film takes bloody ages to happen, and I will agree that when you sit down and you see it for the first time, it's beautiful. It is lovely to look at, but in a way. In the same way that when you walk into an aquarium and you see, you know, beautiful fish for the first time or whatever it is, you go, well, that's pretty. You don't want then someone to run behind you, lock the doors and trap you in that aquarium for 192 minutes. It would just, it, it loses its splendor. It loses its magic. And that's exactly what happens while you're watching this thing. All the magic strips away. And I think it's a shame too that Cameron, who is just on a good day, the best that there is you know like he gave us the greatest science fiction action films of all time titanic remains a technical marvel not you know in, in terms of dramatic uh, uh screenwriting you know a huge problem but a technical marvel nonetheless what where does avatar how did he get to avatar 2 he has done so many good things it's a shame to see him be this bad i just i i i blame I really him just couldn't stand it <laughs> Because he's gone mad into nature and veganism. And then he even came out in an interview this week where he said, oh, there was a lot of like cool action gun scenes that I cut out of this film because I didn't want to be glorifying gun violence. And I was like, you made the Terminator and Aliens. Like anytime you think of any of your films, it's like, you know, the Terminator cocking the shotgun. You can't make your name off the back of something and then go, yeah, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. And you made a good point. There's a reason all those IMAX 3D nature shows are, you know, 15, 20 minutes long in the cinema because your attention just completely goes. A film that did not let my attention go, and I think Gordon agrees with me on this one. I've been going back and forth between three different films, but I think my favourite film of the year had to be Brian and Charles. Oh, Andy, I'm so glad you, you mentioned this because it's one of those films that really went under the radar and I thought this was going to get picked up by an awful lot more people and it sadly didn't. But I do hope that it has a TV series in the making. It is a mockumentary about loneliness when you break it all down. And there's this little lonely inventor and he creates a robot and you never find out exactly how he's made the robot. It's almost very much like a kind of a Wallace and Gromit live action sort of feel to it. But it, what's really sweet about Brian and Charles is the is their relationship, and it, uh, it is really like a father and son. And how it's it, like Charles starts off almost like a baby, then becomes this kind of almost Kevin and Perry like moody teenager to eventually uh, almost like this young twenty year old who wants to flee the nest and travel the world and just find a sense of independence. And the backdrop as well, you've got a, a burgeoning lo uh, relationship, a, a possible romantic relationship for Brian. But then you've also got this 
bully character. He's sort of known within this Welsh village for uh, tormenting people. Um, a bit of armed, a bit of a bit of robbery has also uh, been that uh, this man has been associated with as well. And so there's a fear that maybe Charles could be stolen. And so all of this is sort of is percolating away within the story. And I have to say, I thought it was really funny at times and really really sweet. And if you haven't had a chance to see it, I'd urge you to check it out because it's just a little gem. And you touched on there, Jamie Meachie as Eddie. I was rocking in my chair in the cinema wanting to hit him. And I actually, I had the pleasure of interviewing me. It was in a show on Sky called Wedding Season. And as I said to you, we called him the cinematic prick of the year because I never wanted to punch a character as much. He got a great kick out of it. He goes, oh, I must be doing something right then. I was like, I'm kind of glad this interview isn't in person because I couldn't see past the character. He was absolutely fantastic in it. Another one for me was Everything Everywhere All at Once, which was just the, the most unique movie I've seen. It reminded me of The Matrix, where you're like, this is like nothing I've seen before. But I think it's done in a way where you, you're not going to see 50 million different versions of this the way you did with The Matrix. And to have a scene where it's two rocks with googly eyes having a subtitle conversation and I'm in <laughs> floods of tears watching it goes to show just how good and unique it was. And one of my moments, I remember watching it and May who was with me at the time, turning around going, it's that short round from Indiana Jones. Like, no, it's not you mad racist. And then, of course, it turned out he was right. And he is absolutely incredible in it. And I'm kind of hoping now he shows up in the new Indiana Jones. Any of you see everywhere, everywhere, all, everything, everywhere, all at once. And um, what did you think of it? I have, and I absolutely loved it. I thought it, that was, because it came out around the same time as Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And I was like, no, 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 no. this is a multiverse done, right? Like, it just hit all the right notes. And I just, I love what Michelle Yeoh has been doing with her career so far. Like, it, like in recent years, she's just started taking on all of these, like, really fun roles. And you just can't help but being like, yes, Michelle, you go get it, girl. <laughs> A film, I think, I don't think you liked it, Olivia. I think me and Chris were on the, in the on the same side here. Again, another anomaly was The Northman. Um, I had the pleasure of sitting behind a, we'll say, prominent Irish director who was instructing for the first 20 minutes what he would have done differently until I had to eventually slap him across the back of the head and say, please shut the fuck up. Chris, The Northman, this was an early frontrunner for our film of the year, but didn't uh, seem to make it into your top three at the end, if I'm not mistaken. No, but it's it's there in the top five. But why are we talking about this? We should talk more about what you um, assaulting directors at, at, <laughs> at, at, at cinemas in Ireland. Uh, we'll come back to that. Um, yeah, I like this a lot. Unfortunately, uh, not a lot of people went to see this. Uh, this was Robert Eggers' first big, you know, major studio production after giving a smaller releases like The Lighthouse and The Witch. Um, and there was all sorts of talk beforehand about how much creative control he had over the final edit. And, you know, he did come out and say, you know, that it was a bit, a bit of a learning curve for him to kind of sit there and be told well you know you're getting 100 million dollars to make this film there's your, there is going to be maybe a little bit of studio interference but that the version that we saw was the version that we you know that he had intended to release um but again nobody went to see the bloody thing which is a shame because again like what i was saying about top gun maverick this is the sort of film that deserved to be seen on a big screen you had just this wonderful viking uh uh epic that was brutal and just so violent but so entertaining uh with a brilliant central uh, uh brilliant muscular center but in more ways than one central performance from from alexander skarsgård and then all of these people around them doing all of their 
greatest Shakespearean work, because of course this is the Hamlet story that 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 inspired William Shakespeare's Hamlet. So you had Nicole Kidman, uh, you know, kind of chewing up the scenery. You had Ethan Hawke in there, Willem Dafoe, and it's just this great revenge story where Alexander Skarsgård's Viking goes off to avenge his father's death. And if I'm not selling it to you, just go and look at the two-minute trailer and tell me that it's not the best action film that you haven't seen yet. It's now available to stream. I think on now. Get on top of that. So we have the Skarsgård brothers had two films in our best of the year, which I don't think anyone would have predicted at the start of the year. My film that I predicted that I would like the most at the start of the year, I was most looking forward to. And I'll be honest, I was somewhat disappointed in it. And that's the Batman. I just thought there was so, there was so much in it that was done better in previous Batman movies. I just, I liked it. I didn't love it. I thought he was good in it. I just thought Dano's Riddler was a bit, eh. I agree. And I thought the last set piece just felt like, oh crap, yep. we don't have an ending for this. Throw this on because the, nobody's really interacting with anyone. It just seems like, and again, you know, kinda, I, go ahead. You know what I think we do need? I think we need a, a again, a, I, I think they're, they're not going to just quit the Matt Reeves Batman series just yet. I think there's too much has been invested with that. I think James Gunn, who's now one of the heads of DC Studios, is happy for that to continue possibly as a trilogy. But I do think we need a, a new Batman series that kids can go to again. Because I one thing I will say about the Batman is that it seemed like it was very much made with an older audience in mind. And I think like 10 year olds want to go and see Batman again. And I think that's what's been missing because the Ben Affleck one, again, it didn't know what it wanted. It didn't know really what audience it was aiming for because Batman v Superman, as we know, was was a bit of a bloated mess and they never really seemed to get it back on track, even with Justice League. So I do kind of feel like we just need, you know, the Batman animated series. If we could nearly see a live action version of that aimed at maybe a wider audience i think that's a big a big part of um uh, of um what has been lacking in some of the batman movies i'll go you one step further as soon as i win the euro millions or my you know my crypto starts coming in i'm gonna fund a 60 style batman with matt berry as batman that's what (laughs) i want to see (laughs) could you imagine I didn't do a double take there. I was going, Matt Berry? <laughs> oh, that Matt Berry. All right. Alfred! <laughs> Another one that just it had a very limited cinema release, but is on stream now, is Knives Out, uh, a Knives Out mystery, rather, Glass Onion. Olivia, I know you were a, a big fan of this one, as was I. Are you looking forward to the next one? Where do you want to see Benoit Blanc go next? And, and don't say Muppets, because that just seems to be the one everyone wants to go for. Yeah, I'm kind of like wondering where the hell the Muppets came into all this. Like, I feel like I've missed a conversation. Um, Oh, I, I don't mind where he goes next as long as it's just as funny and interesting. For the first half of the film, I was thinking, oh my God, they've absolutely ruined Benoit Blanc. Like he is a bumbling idiot all of a sudden when he had been so like suave and a bit smooth and yeah he had a bit of a dorky side but it wasn't as kind of like oh my goodness oh my dear my my, sorry sir like all that type of stuff I was like no what but they've ruined him and then you've got the switch and you kind of go oh I get it now I'm on board never mind me I'll just sit back shut up and keep watching the film I thought it was brilliant and I've watched it twice since it hit Netflix (laughs) so (laughs) I have now seen it three times and I am still spotting things that I didn't see the first time I will say I did see one of the very 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 key clues as to what was going on the first time I saw it but having gone back and seen it now a couple of other times I'm like oh wow they really and truly had it all laid out there for you and it was so so clever I loved it 
Detective did you see the critical drinkers uh, review of Glass Onion? Now, it's yes. fairly oh, I didn't know. Did I don't agree with a lot of what he's saying. Uh, not everything here, needs actually. to be have an agenda and be, you know, but he seems to everything seems to be negative now. I was I was a huge fan of his and I think he does make a lot of good points about storytelling, but I think he's picking holes in an entertaining murder mystery that don't need to be done. What were your thoughts on it? Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I I did think he was pretty scathing. He, it did seem like he was a man who was still incredibly hurt from The Last Jedi. And no matter what Ryan Johnson does, he's going to tear him apart. For me, I just thought, like Olivia, this was highly entertaining. I actually preferred it more than Knives Out. It was a lot more body. They definitely took uh, Benoit Blanc in a totally different direction. Never did I think that man would have such uh, 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 a colourful wardrobe. Like, but... I really got on board with this. I thought it was fun. And yeah, granted, some of it is a bit contrived in places. But if you're caught up in it, who cares? It's exactly. just, it was just it's great an entertaining who done it. Exactly. It is. And actually, just when you mentioned the wardrobe there, I'd totally forgotten. I have not talked about his swimwear enough. <laughs> like the the two piece, like with the shirt and in the swimming pool, drinking the kombucha. Oh, my God. I nearly lost my life. I was laughing so much. It's just gas. I think you were distracted by Batista in his three-piece. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Netflix actually had a, another film in the cinema, which I thought I was actually going to get thrown out of the cinema. I was like Robert De Niro in Cape Fear. And that's Roald Dahl's Matilda with our, our own Ashley and Weir as the star. But there is a moment in this film where the class are brought in and one of the kids, there's um, an adult class there the night before and they have algebra on the board. So the kid is seeing algebra for the first time. He's like, miss, this doesn't make any sense. There's letters and numbers. There's letters and numbers. Why are they together? And he has his head in his hands and he's just having an absolute freak out. They're trying to rub it off before he flips out. And I was in absolute hysterics. There was only about 10 people in the cinema. And you know when it goes quiet and you still haven't finished, I was like, I, I need to go outside because otherwise I'm just going to be chuckling like a lunatic during all this. All I was missing was the cigar. Am I the only one who saw Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical? And if you haven't, definitely go check it out on Netflix. No, I haven't seen it. And it's great to see another young Irish actress uh, front and centre um, with this. Uh, the Tim Mitchin musical is widely praised. This actually looks fairly decent. Like the Danny DeVito adaptation from Memory Serves Me wasn't that bad. Um, and the music to this, uh, to Matilda is generally really well loved. I, I, it's one of those, it's definitely on my to watch list. I still haven't got around to, to seeing it, but I definitely will. Yeah, the Tim Minchin songs are fantastic. And, and obviously, along with uh, Elise, you've got Emma Thompson, you've uh, Lashana Lynch, Stephen Graham is in it as well. He's really, really good. He's playing kind of the, the Danny DeVito role in this. A, a film for me that really, really surprised me that I wasn't expecting anything of was Weird, the Al Yankovic story starring Danny Radcliffe. Danny Radcliffe? That's a, yeah. Well, he, he had the, his hands on the All-Ireland at one point, so we, we can call him Danny Radcliffe. Uh, Olivia, I know you were a huge fan of this as well. Um, what, what did you are you a fan of Al Yankovic beforehand, or was this just a, a complete left field for you, like it was for me? I always get a chuckle out of Weird Al, but I was never like a diehard fan. But I was just so curious to see what the heck was going on, and especially with with Dan Radcliffe being cast, um, I just wasn't sure what what the hell was going on. Decided to watch it one night, and I was 
I don't think I laughed as much as I did for Knives Out, but I still thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought they really hit the nail on the head because it's almost like a parody of a parody of a parody in itself as well. Like there's so many stories in there that you're just like, that never happened. Like what the hell? But it suits the story for Weird Al for it to be so bloody weird. So it it hit the nail on the head for me. I think in terms of biopics, it was the perfect one for Weird Al because it was so bloody weird. You said it. Like, this was the film I wanted the the unbearable weight of massive talent to be. And you said there about wait that didn't happen because you're watching it about 15 20 minutes in you think you know oh yeah he grew up with a rough household and then there's a moment where he he releases a parody song of beat it and someone calls him up and says you're never going to believe this michael jackson is after releasing a song that's exactly like yours and you're kind of thinking wait that's is that how it happened and then it gets progressively more and more ridiculous like oh wait no none of this is true he's had like he's come out and said like i had a pretty bland childhood you know I, i needed to make it somewhat interesting and I, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. I was shocked by it. And again, Daniel Radcliffe with, you know, hundreds of millions in the bank gets to do whatever he bloody well wants. And he seems to be having the, the time of his life. Chris, anything we haven't touched on that you want to give a, a special shout out to? Yeah, I think in terms of the, the best films of the year, uh, The Quiet Girl was a homegrown triumph. Um, and I know at this stage, it's been uh, uh, long listed for uh, the best international uh, feature at, at this year's Oscars. Um, so fingers crossed that that actually uh, makes the uh, makes the, the, the five nominees. I'm, uh, I'm dying to watch that. I, I actually, I, I COVID the, the week it came out and missed it. I rented it on Apple TV over Christmas. But right. it's a dubbed English language version. And I was just like, no, I'm going to no. try and catch it again when it comes out. Because obviously the, the awards, things like The Lighthouse end up really re-releasing. It's like, I'm not watching the dubbed English version of like the, the most successful Irish language film of all time. So no. just a heads up, if you're renting it on Apple, make sure you you know, you know check those language settings for us and don't waste 17 quid like I did. No, and it's still in cinemas too as well. I think it's one of the longest, uh, this is the longest time that an Irish language feature or even an Irish film has spent in cinemas because it's been in cinemas since before the start of the summer. And it did break a record in terms of its box office takings at a, bit, at, 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 at a million euro. It's the most successful, and that's across Ireland and UK box office takings. That's, that makes it the most successful Irish language feature ever. And I think as well that it's been so nice to kind of see all of the goodwill behind this film because there are times when Irish films come out and we tend to over, you know, let's be honest, we tend to over celebrate and we, we champion every new big Irish film that comes out and we need to champion homegrown films. But when something really special comes along, that kind of makes you think, no, hold on, here's actually something that is worthy of all that praise. It's an, it's an Irish language film. Uh, yes, but that's not what, that doesn't define it. It's just a beautiful story inspired by a beautiful novella by Claire Keegan that's so well performed, that's so well scripted, uh, phenomenal phenomenally shot and brilliantly scored as well by Stephen Rennox. It is probably the best Irish film I've seen over the last 10 years. And if you haven't seen it, I know Andy, you haven't watched it. Do not watch a dubbed version. Watch the real original version if you can. You made a great point there because I think we have that thing with Irish films where we'll add a star or two on just because it's Irish. But because it's competing with, you know, things like The Northman or things like Banshees of Inishir, the fact that we have films being like, well, that's a bad Irish film. And then you have something like this where you go, no, no, this is worth your money. This is worth the same 15 quid you were going to give to Avatar. This is worth a hell of a lot more than that, I imagine, based on that. Gordon, anything else you want to you want to add to this before we move on to our, our worst of the year? 
Well, I had to mute my microphone because I didn't have a quiet girl in the background here. Uh, my daughter just ran into the room. <laughs> I thought I heard a child giggling and I was just like, just in my head. I was what? like, your time and good anymore. Perfect. Um, I, I, being a father myself, um, on Colleen Kuhn, the, when I, getting into the ending, that just broke me. Absolutely. That, that it's the very last shot and moment in the film. And a colleague of mine had seen the film first. And he said, um, he goes, I heard this is going to be emotional. Uh, and uh, he goes, but he goes, oh, well, I wonder when this is really going to kick in. And I was like the same as him. I was like, I, I, again, I, I loved the film. I adored it. But by God, the waterworks, it it, it just it, it started up at that last, uh, that last scene. It's a beautiful piece of work. I really hope it gets shortlisted. It deserves it. And it's great to see an Irish language film uh, doing so well on the international stage. But overall, just the talent that's in front and behind the camera. It's a beautifully crafted story. And again, really nuanced um, in terms of the performances as well. Um, Like it's such a really well crafted movie. I, I can't say enough good things about it. Is it as heartbreaking as when you let, let's say, a colleague pull out of a petrol station and they don't wave to it and say thank you? Do you know what? It's it's probably <laughs> up there with that, Andy, and 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 that moment was even tinged with even greater sadness because it was over Christmas. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you turn into a real. I didn't see there. Andy at a petrol station by all accounts. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. We'll move on to the worst of the year. Uh, Gordon, you and I, I think have a very similar one. Uh, Halloween ends for a mm. series that started like the first one was so good, and. Halloween kills. I thought, oh god, they've gone a bit weird here. And then Halloween ends was just the absolute shit. Oh, what did you god. think of it? Like I, like with the 2018 film, I I did feel like it 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 did feel stuffed with too many ideas, and it really it should have just concentrated on the podcasters and. Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode story. But then they try to shoehorn in this, again, a typical teen, uh, uh, you know, stalk and slash. I thought the whole teenage story didn't really need to be there. Just let the podcasters and Laurie's story breathe a bit. And then uh, Halloween Kills just felt like complete and utter filler because obviously things have gone so well that Blumhouse and Universal said, look, we let's, we got to stretch it out to a trilogy. Everything needs to be a trilogy these days. So Halloween Kills, I just thought was absolutely forgettable but there was a little faint little bit of hope that they had an idea for a third film that would really kind of bring it all back and uh, and give Michael Myers the the proper send off and and a payoff for the series because unfortunately that that's one of the, the big problems even with the other uh, alternate um Halloween timeline is that it just went on and it lost its way and unfortunately the third film it was like it was handed over to someone do you remember like when you were kids and you'd get a piece of paper and you'd fold it into three and someone would draw the head <laughs> and then someone would draw the body and then someone end up doing the legs that's what this series felt like you know you felt like it was like made by three different people and it's if you look at the credits it's not it's david gordon green and uh, danny mcbride where they went with this third story it would talk about taking a left turn they definitely were riffing off um return of the living dead part three so they robbed a little bit from that but it almost feels as if somebody gave them the idea of this sort of tragedy horror romeo and juliet and thought oh i can't get this made just can't can't, can't get it off the ground like, and david gordon green just like cory and things like this who the fuck is Corey and what is he doing introducing them in like the last of a trilogy of a Halloween film? It makes no sense, Andy. Myers like, living in the sewers. Yeah, like you, you, you can't, you make the most, one of the greatest 
slashers in horror cinema and you you make him redundant in his own series in favor of this young teen that has been given no proper um backstory at all like granted the opening scene is really good but he he doesn't deserve to be front and center and i think that was so disappointing and you had like jamie lee Curtis and laurie Stroud, one of the the all-time great horror movie characters you turn her into like a housewife dickhead initially and then she's batman halfway through where she's like disappearing mid-conversation andy matichek uh, as allison who was you know set up as you know the, the laurie Stroud, the next laurie Stroud. All of a sudden, she becomes a gormless moron chasing after this idiot. And then when she sees, you know, the the, the botanist spoiler, well, spoilers, just don't watch it. Corey dead. And she goes, oh, you did this, grandmother, and runs off. Like, this is a two second conversation. Like, this isn't the character you've had in the first two films. All of a sudden, you were just a brainless idiot. And again, I was hoping because, you know, the first one done so well, I thought they had to do a filler with the second one. And they had a closing chapter for this. They absolutely didn't. They had that first film. No. It done a successful. And then they were just, okay, okay shit, now we have to make two more of these. Absolutely. Chris, sorry, go on. No, no. I, I'm, and that's the thing that really kind of pains me as well, Andy, is because not only was, was David Gordon Green allowed to make these sequels, He's also been given this new Exorcist sequel trilogy. So he's already shot a huge portion of it. And I think they're back now just doing a few more weeks. But that's going to be one of the big horror films that's going to be released in 2023. It'll be up against Saw X, the 10th Saw movie. And you go, oh, dear Lord, the team behind the Halloween sequel trilogy are now making the Exorcist sequel trilogy. Like, oh, my God, like, I, like that's what's scary. I'm you just know, that's dying to see Caramel's review of that. Oh, listen, that, that might, that'll tip him over the edge. That's what that's what's going to happen. It's going to be another redundant affair. And even if they get lucky with a, a film that is moderately OK, you can be guaranteed that the sequels, again, um, it, it, typical. There, there, There's not enough material there to, to stretch it out. We've even again, we've seen it with the original um, Exorcist series. There was only one half decent sequel, which was The Exorcist 3, which never even needed to be called The Exorcist 3. They just had to shove in an exorcism in order to give it the title. <laughs> like, like anyway, and go off on a tangent. But anyway, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I, I just really fear for what they're going to do with The Exorcist next. Talking of redundant Ex- horror shows, that leads us nicely to Chris's choice. Blackboard, the Michael yeah. Flatley opus. Yeah, I suppose it's low-hanging fruit. And when you look at some of the other big bad films of 2022, you think to yourself, well, if, you know, uh, like Colin Trevorrow with, with Jurassic World and and everyone involved in the Fantastic Beast uh, 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 d- debacle, like these guys had, you know, huge budgets at their disposal and amazing talent and great special effects teams and great screenwriters, all the rest of it. And they still managed to come up with absolute trash. When, when, you think with something like Blackbird, which is a vanity project, that's all it ever has been. And I love the fact that Michael Flatley, when he was doing the press rounds for this, kept saying, it's not a vanity project. You know, it's something like I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. It's totally a vanity project. <laughs> when, when you think to yourself, well, you know, he got it written and he directed it and everyone remembered their lines and the camera was straight and it was delivered to, you know, the distributors on time for a release, that's a little bit of a success. So it kind of feels a little bit wrong to kind of say this is one of the worst films of the year. But And also because I would recommend if you ever get the chance to watch this in a crowded room and there's drinks and the snacks flowing, go ahead and do that because you will have a laugh with this thing. It's basically Michael Flatley's action film that he always wanted to make, 
but he forgot to include any action in it. And I, and and it was hilarious to to see so many um, uh, publications talk about how this was Michael Flatley's Bond when when. No, it's not. You don't see any action in it. It's actually Michael Flatley's Casablanca, but you know, but made by someone who clearly watched maybe about twenty minutes of Casablanca before running off, you know, with some crayons to kind of write up their own version of it. It kind of sits somewhere between Taffin and the Room in terms of the way it's presented, and there are there are significant problems. I should say there are significant problems when it comes to you know the storytelling, when it comes to the direction, the performances, the lighting, everything involved in the actual making of it. But Andy, I had such a fun time watching this i had such a fun time whenever you know the 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 beautiful women would come into view because michael flatley had to have your know, beautiful women in one scene to tell you know the main character that he himself is beautiful or in the words of one character i must say you yeah, look fierce handsome tonight i think that's an actual line of dialogue in this thing or it when is. at one stage <laughs> or when at one stage michael flatley's blackbird because he is known as, as the blackbird you know this uh, uh, uh legendary retired secret agent who now runs a hotel for some reason at one stage he tells uh this big brawny muscular man who's been sent to kill him or something he says to him you're a big unit aren't you that's the kind of that's the kind of dialogue that we're dealing with here. And I, sh- and I should mention also, there is a terrific scene in this thing involving a hat. And let's just say that Michael Flatley changes hats for no apparent reason other than, you know, he obviously something bad will happen to him if he drives a car wearing the same hat that he was wearing while he was walking on his two feet. So you'll have an awful lot of fun with this thing. I laughed at this, this film more than I laughed at even it's, the It's the Hellfish. Comedy. If you've ever seen the episode yeah. of The Simpsons with the Hellfish, it's basically that. And yeah. to be fair, if somebody handed me 50 million quid and said, make a film that no one's going to see, this is what I'd make. I'd make me as the most, you know, every character, every woman in the, sh- in the film is basically undressing him with his eyes and will explode if they don't have him right there. And then every fight he wins. And then the, the, the closing line is just like there was actual cheers in the cinema when I saw Olivia, what were your thoughts on Blackboard? Oh, like Chris actually just hit the nail on the head when he was like comparing it to the room because, and especially with the hat thing, I was like cackling away to myself because I think changing hats is going to be to Blackbird what throwing spoons is to the room. <laughs> like that's the level that we are talking here. And I just can't wait for it to become a cult classic with these kinds of screenings because it is just made for it. So Look, it was a bit of a box office flop for them uh, at the end of the day, even with the whole four-year cinema day being at the opening weekend. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's definitely one that you should be like, sit down with your mates, have a few drinks. And I just I look forward to seeing what other things people are going to come up with for it uh, once it hits that cult cinema classic status, because it will. If I have no doubt that it's going to be the Irish The Room. I think it was that what makes it so entertaining for me is that it it's so competently made i got to interview dave minogue he directed a uh, poster boys a couple of years ago he was the assistant director on this and a couple of years ago before this was released i said to him, i was like i know you work on this like, what's going on like what the hell is happening with it and he said honestly i know you want the, the heart of darkness story he said it's the best fun i've ever had shooting a film everyone was really well paid and flatly has been an absolute joy to work with so he's like i'm kind of sorry you don't have the, the behind the scenes story he goes, well it's actually it's, it's been a lot of fun to make and i think that comes across on the screen i think the only person who isn't in on the joke is flatly which makes it all the funnier olivia we're gonna go with you with your worst of the year and a film i had the pleasure of watching last night in anticipation (laughs) of this and that's the russo brothers the gray man 
Oh, sweet Jesus. Talk about a film that's grey by name and nature. It is just so dull. And like, you even said it last night. You were just like, how could they make a fight scene that's taking place during a fireworks display, the most boring piece of cinema ever. And I was like, exactly. And that's at the beginning. And it just sets the tone for the rest of the film. It's like they just kind of like got caught up in using drone shots for absolutely everything and kind of forgot that they were making an actual film that needed to entertain, you know, like I suppose like some of the plot makes a little bit of sense, but Overall, like the only person that actually looks like they're having any bit of fun is Chris Evans with that wonderful mustache. Um, and you're just, it, it, uh, I, I'm lost for words. I hate it that much. <laughs> it's, it's just dull. Like you have Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans, Anna de Armas, Wagner Mora, who played uh, Pablo Escobar in Narcos, and then Billy Bob Thornton. And you just make something that's like, I'm forgetting this as I'm watching. Like, I text you, Jordan. It's like, how is this still on? Like, it's only, I think it's only two hours, but it felt as long as Avatar. Nothing <laughs> happened in it. It's just like, oh, here's the thing to get the oak to the next scene. And it's just, if you'd have played clips of like Six Underground or Red Notice in the middle of that, I wouldn't have known the difference. The whole thing just looks like, they all look like they were shot in the same, you know, street corner in the middle of Prague. Yeah, Chris, you even you asked me a question. You even asked me a question at one point to be like, "Oh, I bet you like something like this is like going to come back." And I was like, "I honestly have no idea what you're talking about. I don't even remember that character." <laughs> like, it was. I. I did. I fall asleep during it. Maybe I did. It was that boring. It's like Anthony and Joe Russo. I was like, one of them was like, "Okay, we're going to make the new Bond," and then the other one was like, "We're going to make Man on Fire," and they both went off and shot it and came back and went, "Oh shit, no, I picked up the wrong script." It, it's two completely different films. Neither of them work. It, it was it's just i can't get annoyed at it because it was just so meh it's not like something like black adam where it's just like you have not got a fucking clue what you're doing this is just yep yeah, paint by numbers two and a half stars we've got the big one and it's the most watched film on netflix of the year as well which made it all the more annoying i've mentioned it there so we've we have to get into it black adam was about the worst cinema experience i've seen one man's rampant ego out of control with a character he has fundamentally no understanding of. And the only good thing about it is that this has failed. I love like I love the fact it wasn't Skyscraper or Jumanji or anything he could have blamed anything else on. This was his one he's been going for for 15 years. And to see him scramble to say, oh no, if you add in the plushy toys and the stamps and the Zoa energy and the terrible decree, this has actually made a profit. No, it hasn't. People are finally getting on board. People are finally seeing it now. The Rock is a fraud. Long live Batista. Chris, what were your thoughts on Black Adam? And if you say it was good in any way, shape or form, I will kick you out of this room right now. Actually, I really... No, I'm only joking. I couldn't do that. Um, I really wanted to, but I was like... You can I hear Andy's a... like, intake of breath. He was just like, what? You can't have a recording out there of me recommending Black Adam to anyone. That that would just ruin uh, a whole lot of people's days. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's pretty terrible. Um, I actually think that if you remove the slow-mo scenes from Black Adam, which is around... I think it passes the... Or clocks in around the two-hour mark. You've probably got about half an hour of cinema. And it's that usual DC thing where let's tell a story. Let's make a superhero film that looks and sounds and plays out like a sequel to five or six other superhero films that we forgot to make. 
And I thought we were past that maybe with DC, but this whole like teaming up the, is it the Justice Society of America and Pierce Brosnan is there playing this, you know, Aldi version of Doctor Strange. And then you've got the little version of Falcon from Marvel. And then you've got some sort of Deadpool-esque meets Ant-Man thing that blows up on, I don't know. And in the middle of all this, you've got Dwayne Johnson free and usually one of the things that I, I used to defend this guy and i used to say you know like he he does bring charisma and 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 charm and like ability to whatever role that he's in we saw none of those things in black adam it was just so bland so uninterested in itself and in exploring the character and telling his story a proper way there must be three or four kind of you know rogue pulls in this film where everything you think you know about the character it's like oh no we were just deceiving you here's the rest of that backstory actually no we were lying there there's actually more to this backstory it keeps doing that and you can't keep doing that you can't just keep tricking the audience that's not storytelling that's just deceitful and, and that's um, him you so- can tell even from the trailer you can see like that wasn't where that character was supposed to come from or where that no. character was supposed to no. go. And the thing in the comics, like he is an anti-hero. And I thought that's an interesting way to go. You can start him off as a villain, maybe soften him a bit towards the end. Then as you keep going, you know, eventually becomes a goodie. No, he is a goodie from the start. And the only thing left over from that is every so often Dwayne Johnson turns is like, oh, I'm not that kind of hero. I'm not a hero. And then he will do something heroic. He'll save the child, he'll save the girl. And like he just arrives as basically Superman. And then that terrible post-credit sequence that rather than go through Shazam, which is where Black Adam goes through in the comics, he says, no, SEO doesn't, you know, search engine optimization isn't good enough. Henry Cavill is getting a lot of traction. So Henry Cavill, we're going to bring him back as Superman and do the exact same, you know, post-credit scene they've done in Morbius. And even more hilariously, gets Henry Cavill basically fired from Superman because he's been associated with this. Because if you throw Henry Cavill in a Superman, you can have to say, oh, is Black Adam in this universe? He essentially got Cavill fired from The Witcher and Superman in one go, which I thought was just absolutely delightful as well. A few more on my worst list. Fall, I know you agree with me, Chris. You said it was the worst film you've ever seen. Morbius, Fantastic Beasts, Jurassic Park for me, though. Like, how do you make a boring dinosaur movie? <laughs> like, if you just had them, you know, running through the field for an hour, it would be more entertaining than this. And again, speaking of stars kind of on the way, Chris Pratt just seems to have fallen completely off the wagon from, you know, the Parks and Rec, Andy, Guardians of the Galaxy, even the first Jurassic World, now it just seems like people are sick of the sight of him. And and you know, speaking of the, the critical drinker, Gordon, his review we had like you know, fifteen different characters at the end of this. Like, dinosaurs need to start eating these people now. You see, oh, he, what's your man's name again? The the director of this. Oh, he was he was due Trevor, to Colin Trevor. Yeah, I can't pronounce the surname, so I just go Trevor, and everyone just seems to know who I mean. <laughs> I think this fella's a bit of a chancer. He got lucky with uh, safety not guaranteed and then suddenly got elevated into this particular um, big kind of blockbuster director status because I think George Lucas was one of his cheerleaders and suddenly he kind of was put on the map. But then to be given Jurassic World and then soon to be given Star Wars Episode Nine, and then that for that to come a cropper because he made the Book of Henry, which I think really kind of showcased his true talent. And again, This Jurassic World series reminded me of the Halloween series in that they never really had a plan for three films. Granted, you could say the same about the the recent Star Wars sequels in that that second film, Fallen Kingdom, was pure filler for Trevorrow to come back and try and do a lap of honour by bringing the old team back. But they had nothing to do. Nobody had anything to do. He was riffing off of other better filmmakers. The film was boring. The kids were bored with it. And 
this is the other thing he claims. Oh, this isn't the last of this film. It, it said in all the trailers, the 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 epic conclusion. You know what I mean? He said they're going to make more. How are they going to make more? Like, where will it go? It won't go with any of these characters. They're going to have to start afresh. But will anyone care? I don't. And I think they just need to let this rest in peace. Time traveling dinosaurs on the moon with the Fast and the Furious. That's the crossover <laughs> you need to go through. I mentioned they're fantastic beasts and the secrets of gay wizard Hitler. Again, one of those films that every time I look at, oh, I must watch that. I was like, oh, I've seen this. It was absolutely horrendous. Why they didn't bring Colin Farrell back? That could have been, that's the one ace in the hole they had and they didn't use it. Morbius, which was a film so bad and you know the, the internet reviled it so much they managed to trick people into thinking it was good and getting them to release it again again jerry leto a man who's not in on the joke is there any other of the we're just going to wrap up there any more worse the year you think are, are worthy of a, a dishonorable mention yeah, i think that we've hit a lot of them on the head morbius i think i'm just shocked that none of us had it higher up on our worst watch list but i think it was just a generic we everyone knows it's terrible so we're just going to leave it at that <laughs> do you know actually was terrible bros it should have been so much better. That oh, gay rom com. Oh, I his, really like best. that. Awful, awful. That Billy Eichsing or whatever his name is. Awful, 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 awful. He should be treated like uh, a, an animal that can no longer go to stud <laughs> and just put down. Like horrendous. Jeez, just... Gordon, tell us how you really feel. Oh, <laughs> what were they doing thinking of putting him in it? I know he's the writer. I would be like, going, thanks for the script now. Your services are finished. That's it. We need to move on now from you. He was dreadful. He was so tryhard. He was so obnoxious and loud. I was just like, make him stop. It was like being beside someone who constantly, you just, you just couldn't escape from him. He just constantly shouting. I was like, enough. It should have been so good. It was one of the worst things I've seen. And I was so looking forward to it. I like how Gordon's turned into me on this show. This is fantastic. It's like if you swap roles, Gordon literally just slots into, you know, your crankiness. You know? I'm shocked. I really, really enjoyed Bros. I thought it was very, very good. Far no, better I than want, I was expected. I, I, just, I just want the big takeaway from this podcast for, for to be for people to go away and seek out this, uh, this deadly, uh, flawed, but deadly little survival trailer called Fall. Uh, it should be available to stream there. That's um, all we have time for. <laughs> <laughs> well played, Chris. <laughs> Unfortunately, actually, that is all we have time for this week. Gordon Hayden, Chris Wasser, Olivia Fahey, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you again. Thank you so, so much. And we definitely have to do this again very, very soon. Thanks so much, guys. Happy New Year. Cheers, Andy. Happy New Year. We spent some time in Hollywood trying to find something to get the thought of you and I. Hope my mind should tell me to the stars.